Matthew 6, 9 through 13. I'm going to read that. I'm going to, I'm going to use the ESV version. If mentally you know the King James version, that's just fine as well. But you can follow along. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As a little guy, I came across James 4.2 at some point, and I, I listened to it or read it, I don't remember which it was, uh, with a very sinful little heart. And so, sinful little Jeffy hears, you do not have because you do not ask. And you can imagine what, as a little guy, where my mind went with that. My prayer life had this enormous revival at that point. And I spent a lot of time with very detailed prayers, saying, God, I want that bike, and I want that video game, and I'd like to be good at sports, and it'd be really cool if my sister was gone for the weekend. And these are the sorts of prayers that sinful little Jeffy prayed very vigorously for a while, because thought, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, I'm going to ask, and I'm going to get. I completely ignored what's before that and what's after that in James, and I completely ignored the heart of God in the process and all the rest. So clearly I didn't actually get those things, because that's not the point of that passage. So clearly the revival really didn't last that long. As soon as I realized that it wasn't a genie that I could like rub a bottle and get what I wanted out of, I kind of gave up on prayer as a little guy. I didn't understand prayer. The reality is, that prayer isn't about us getting what we want from God. Prayer aligns our hearts with the heart of God. Prayer aligns our pursuits with the pursuits of God. Prayer aligns our values with the values of God. Prayer isn't about us getting what we want out of God. Prayer is about being changed as we pray. This prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a kingdom prayer. It isn't just a provision prayer. It isn't just a, boy, I'm really selfish about the stuff that I pray for, so I shouldn't do that kind of prayer. It's a kingdom prayer. And in the process of really engaging the Lord's prayer, we become kingdom people, kingdom worshipers. That's my goal for this morning, that as we walk through the Lord's prayer, that we would see who God wants us to be as kingdom people, and that we would become kingdom worshipers, that he would move us better and further in that direction than we are now. The context of this prayer is, is very important. As Jesus began his ministry, Matthew records uh, his baptism, then his temptation in the desert, and then the, the summary of Jesus' opening preaching is this. It says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus begins his teaching ministry, the umbrella under which he puts everything that he is about to do is stop living for this world because I'm bringing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. And that's the umbrella under which all of his teaching fits, under which his walking around and talking with his disciples, under which his healing and casting out demons and his redemptive work on the cross and the empty tomb that remains, that all falls under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. 
That's the case because Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And everything that Jesus touched during his life was instantly reordered to be exactly how it would be if God did it in the first place. Where there was sickness, the creator touched and healing came. Where there was demonic activity, God Almighty approached and demons scattered. Where there was oppression, he spoke truth and freedom arrived. Where there was presumptuous knowledge that was actually lack of knowledge, truth came to the table and falsity was shown and truth prevailed. God, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and in everything that he did, everything that he touched, life was reordered as if God did it because he was doing it. The Sermon on the Mount is the, the first large sermon from Jesus in Matthew, and it is a kingdom sermon. It is a sermon about who kingdom people are going to be. It is about the hearts and the minds and the lives of kingdom people. And kind of nestled right in that Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer, a kingdom prayer. This isn't a chant that we repeat. It isn't a guide to show us how to get more from God. It's actually a guide that shows what parts of our hearts God wants to deal with as he makes us kingdom people. So the Lord's Prayer isn't about us doing something for God so we get something. It's about who he's making us as kingdom people. We're going to walk through the prayer, just kind of verse by verse, and then we're actually going to back our way through the prayer and track some of the implications of what Jesus says in that prayer. I don't have an outline for you other than we'll just go verse by verse through the the text. We're going to start at verse 9. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Jesus starts off defining our relationship to God Almighty. He is Father, and we are his children. Jesus also defines his nature right there at the onset. He is holy. Hallowed is a a term of worship or exaltation that deals specifically with God's holiness. God's holiness uh, can be defined, one way to define it is to say it's the It's the absolute perfection of everything that God is. So God isn't just smart. He is all-knowing. He he isn't just strong. He's all-powerful. When you have the the alls, the omniscience, the the omnis and the alls of everything that God is together, that's his holiness. It's the absolute completeness of who he is. And in the absolute completeness of who he is, There are things that he is not. There is no selfishness. There is no pride. There is no sin of any sort in God. So that is all automatically excluded, and everything that he is is exalted. That's God's holiness. And when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he says, we want to bring all that God is to bear on that. It's about who God is, not who we want him to be. One of the temptations that we deal with and that Jesus addresses is our, our propensity, our desire to remake God in our image, to approach a God made in our image, rather than be reshaped into his image as we approach him. And so this hallowed be your name makes it impossible for us to rightly approach a God made in our image. It is about God's holiness, exalting who, the, the fullness of who God is, 
That's how Jesus starts the prayer. If, if uh, I was going to reward it, I would say, he says, may your absolute perfection of everything that you are be seen and cherished. That's hallowed be your name. May the absolute perfection of everything that you are be seen and cherished. We have a paradox. You guys know what a paradox is? It's when two things that don't seem to go together are brought together and you realize they really do go together. Like peanut butter and chocolate. They really do go together. We have a paradox here that is way better than peanut butter and chocolate. Holy nearness. Holy nearness. Holiness, God's holiness, and our nearness to God don't belong together. If God is holy and absolute in every perfection possible, and we are not, then we don't deserve to be with God. Our nearness to him is a paradox. It shouldn't go together. But when Jesus says that something is so, it is so. And when Jesus says that this holy God is our father, then we have a holy nearness. It's a nearness that doesn't minimize God's holiness, and it doesn't diminish our nearness. It's a paradox. They don't belong together, but Jesus brings them together beautifully. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we see, when we grasp the nearness of God, our burning desire becomes the arrival of his, his blessed presence, his perfect ways, wherever we set foot. When we experience that, that God is our heavenly father and he remains absolutely perfect, we want that intimacy, that closeness. We desire it. The kingdom of God is kind of, on the one hand, this massive, often murky concept. We talk about it a lot. We use the term a lot. And it can be hard to define the kingdom of God. One way to do that, a very, very simplified version, is to say that when the presence of God is, is, is in a place and the ways of God are followed, you have the kingdom of God. When the presence of God comes and is enjoyed and the ways of God are followed, the kingdom of God is in that place. The presence of God and the ways of God. That's why Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, because Emmanuel, God with us, was roaming this earth, and everything that he touched was instantly reordered as God would do it. The kingdom of God had arrived. When the presence of God and the ways of God come together, the kingdom of God is present. And when we grasp the nearness of God, our heavenly father, that Jesus talks about in verse 9, we want his presence wherever we go. And when we grasp the holiness that Jesus exalts in verse 9, the perfection of everything that he is and does, then we want his way to be done wherever we go. And so the natural prayer that flows out of understanding the presence and the holiness of God is to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Right now, there's like a veil between us and God. Steve sometimes talks about how um, right now the spiritual wor- world is, is, in a sense, separated from the physical world. And we don't see God fully as he is. We do, we're not able to, to completely be in his presence and enjoy all that he is right now. It is that way in heaven. The saints that have gone before us are in the presence of God fully. And when the new heavens and the new earth are made, the spiritual and the physical will come together. And as Steve likes to say, we will be in the throne room of God and worship God and we will step over here and have an apple and we'll be back in the presence of God and the physical and spiritual will intermingle. But right now, there's, there's some separation between those two. Do you remember the account of, of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? He was an old priest. It was his turn to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem And the Holy of Holies at that point in history is where the presence of God resided on earth. We now, as believers in Jesus, have the Spirit of God within us, and so we are the temple of the living God. We get to bring God with us wherever we go as his temples. But at this point in history, the redemption through Christ had not yet occurred, so there was a temple with a very isolated place, the Holy of Holies, and that's where the presence of God dwelt on earth. And once a year, there were sacrifices, and the priest went in to sprinkle, sprinkle uh, the Ark of the Covenant with, uh, with blood. And uh, so Zechariah was a priest. It was his turn. He went into the Holy of Holies, and while he is there, the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And he, he said that he was going to be a father. Gabriel told Zechariah that Zechariah was going to be a father. And My paraphrase of Zechariah's response is to say, what? No, no, trust me, that can't happen anymore. I am not going to be a father. Impossible. And to that, Gabriel says, it's a chastisement. He says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent here to tell you this. Can you imagine Gabriel standing in the presence of God and God saying, Gabriel, go tell Zechariah that he's going to have a son to prepare the way for my son. And Gabriel's kind of standing there and he's like, actually, I'm kind of occupied over here. Could you send Michael to go do that? And then I'll catch up with him later and we'll debrief. Great. Can you imagine in the presence of God, Gabriel doing that? Or, or maybe it would, it would be more of a um, God asks Gabriel or tells Gabriel to go tell Zachariah he's going to be a dad. And Gabriel says, you know, I've been thinking about that plan. I'm not so convinced about it. Here's the negatives that I see. Maybe we should reconsider. Let's have a little board meeting and make some decisions about it. No. When you're in the presence of God... And the God that spoke light into being and that spoke dirt into being and that spoke birds into being, when that God thunders forth and says, go, the only viable response is to say, on it, Lord, as you get into motion. That's the only response. Because the God that spoke everything into being, whatever he says to do is going to happen. Is there, is there really any doubt that if... God Almighty tells Gabriel, go tell Zechariah, he's going to be a dad. Is there any doubt that that's going to happen? Like, is, is Gabriel standing in the presence of God saying, 
gee, I don't know, Zechariah is pretty old, but maybe God can pull it off. That, we have those reactions here on earth because of that distance between us and God. But in the presence of God, it does not go that way. So when Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's saying, Lord, bring your presence and your ways right here and help me to respond as if I was physically in your presence. Help me to respond to you right here, right now, as if I was standing in your presence right where Gabriel was. That's what it means when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This desire in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, sets the stage for the rest of the prayer. Everything that follows cannot be separated from this desire for the kingdom of God, for the presence and the ways of God to come. It cannot be separated. This is a kingdom prayer, and verse 10 sets the stage. Jesus then walks us through three common struggles that we have, three common responses to the totality of what it means for the kingdom of God to come and for his will to be done here on earth as it is done in heaven. The first one, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. God set up a system where we work. Adam, before there was sin, Adam had a job to do, and he worked. Work is not a result of the curse and of sin. Futility in work is a result of the curse. But work, God created work before time began and from the begin sorry, before sin began. From the beginning of the Bible till the end of the Bible, being diligent in working is part of God's system. Sometimes God uses that effort, that diligent diligence to provide for our need for food and shelter. Many of us work and receive a paycheck from that. Sometimes God chooses to have us work very hard and receive little or no paycheck for that. Nonetheless, work and diligence is right. However God chooses to provide, provision is from him. That's the key. It's not that work equals provision. It's that God equals provision. God is our provider. I don't, I don't have because I work, and you don't have because you work, or you don't not have because you work. God is our provider. To put it in our terms today, our Heavenly Father is not a deadbeat dad. Our Heavenly Father provides for his children. Amen. If we are children of God Almighty, we can count on him. The apples on the trees in the orchards are God's. The corn in the field is God's. The chickens in the chicken coops are God's. The gold in the mines is God's. He created it all. He owns it all. And he says he's going to provide. So he is the one that we turn to for provision. God, with this, with this prayer, Jesus turns our attention for provision off of our efforts and on to the Father as provider. Our needs in this world are perfectly known to the one that created this world. 
and he is committed to providing. He has everything that he needs to provide for his children. Our Heavenly Father is not a deadbeat dad. But the fact that he provides also means that his provision is for his purposes and not ours. It means that he provides for kingdom work, and to put it bluntly, not so we can be distracted from kingdom work. God provides for kingdom work, not so we can be distracted from it. He designed us to rest. We need to relax. Hobbies are great. But God's provision is for kingdom work. Asking God to provide, recognizing that he is our provider, means that he will provide and that his provision are for his purposes. Remember, prayer aligns our hearts with God, with God's. And certainty of God's provision frees us from anxiety about where it's coming from and frees us from idolatry when he does provide it. Certainty that God provides frees us from anxiety and frees us from idolatry so that we can be about his kingdom. The people of God are certain, sorry, the people of the kingdom are certain that God provides. Now, are we perfect at this? None of us are. We all struggle with it. We all wonder, what's it going to look like when I retire? Where's next month's rent coming from? I have some money in the bank, and I really want that thing. Maybe that's what I should do. We all struggle with that. This entire prayer is going to walk us down a journey that's going to surface what's in our hearts. This isn't what we're going to do perfectly. This is going to surface where our hearts need to be aligned with the heart of God so that we can be kingdom people. And our confidence is that Christ has gone before us and done this right and perfectly pleased the Father and paid the penalty for our failure so that though I am not perfect, God Almighty is my dad because of what Jesus has done. So even in my failure at this, when I am anxious and when I commit idolatry with what God provides, even then, God Almighty is my Father because of what Jesus has done. So this isn't about our performance affecting our standing with God. This is about our hearts coming in line with the heart of God and our pursuits coming in line with the pursuits of God. He moves on to a second struggle that we have in the process. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In Jeff speak, that verse says, Father, forgive us and make us forgivers. Forgive us and make us forgivers. You see, the kingdom of God is the realm of the forgiven. Only those forgiven by God through Christ enjoy the fullness of the presence of God and are able to walk in the ways of God. And so by default, by definition, if we are in the kingdom of God, if we are a part of the people of God, if God is our father and we're in his family, then we have been forgiven. And as the forgiven, we are to be forgivers. Being a forgiver is not optional. It isn't an instant thing. We don't instantly become perfect forgivers. But we must learn. We must be growing in it. 
us being forgivers because we have been forgiven is, um, is so vital to God that Jesus inseparably links those two. The way that he words this verse, there is no way to be forgiven and not be a forgiver. That's a really challenging thought when I'm having a hard time forgiving somebody. And I know that many of you have been wronged far beyond anything I can fathom, and forgiveness is hard. And the good news is that our Father is pleased and loves you, and Emmanuel, God with us, is walking this road of growing in forgiveness. We don't have to be there right now, but we do need to be on the road if we're going to be kingdom people. God, our Heavenly Father, is a forgiver. As his children, that DNA is in us. And it needs to be getting expression in the relationships around us. That's the proof that we are actually children of God. That's a challenge. It's hard to be forgivers when you've been deeply wronged. And I understand that. Jesus continues with the obstacles that we encounter in the process of being kingdom people. Verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from either evil. Father's path for his children is not the perilous one of temptation and sin. The path that God leads us down is not right on the border between where we're supposed to be and where we're not supposed to be. The path that Father leads us down is far, far from the danger of sin. It is a holy path. It is a pure path. And if we find ourselves kind of trying to toe the line and, and, and be near sin but not quite, we're not living as people of the kingdom. We're not living out the DNA of holiness that we have as children of God. The path that God marks out for us is the safe path far from temptation and sin, not walking the line between temptation and sin. The people of the kingdom don't toy with temptation. We flee from it. And again, this is not something that, that we will instantly arrive at. We don't walk out that door, never struggling with sinful desires again. But we do live a life of trying to get further and further from that line by the grace of God and in the power of God and for the glory of God. We can't be comfortable with small sin. We can't be comfortable with what other people don't know about. When we are comfortable with what we don't know about, we do not have the DNA of our Holy Father. It's as simple as that. If we are children of God... Though we struggle with sin, at the end of the day, we will hate it. And that DNA is expressed as we follow the path of God far from temptation in the safe land. That's where the prayer ends. Those are the elements of the prayer that, that Jesus shows. These are heart issues that need to be aligned with me if you're going to be about the kingdom. There's three of them. The people of the kingdom are certain that God will provide for his purposes. The people of the kingdom are forgiven and are forgivers. The people of the kingdom don't toy with temptation. 
they flee from it. Those aren't things that we do perfectly. Those aren't things that, that we will walk out of here having mastered. This is the journey that we're on. But because of the finished work of Jesus, we, we walk this road confident that we are children of God. Despite setbacks, despite failures, despite struggles, despite how slow the journey might be at times, the way of the cross is to grow in those three things. As I spent some time in the Lord's Prayer, I noticed some, some implications, the, the, these, these points uh, tied together in a very beautiful way. And um, I, the clearest way that I saw it was actually walking backwards through the prayer. So we're going to do that now. Uh, it's a lot quicker than the first, first walkthrough, don't worry. Um, we're going to start at the end of the prayer and work our way to the beginning. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we as the people of the kingdom actively flee temptation, when we pour ourselves out with God and say, God, I am drawn to that and I hate it and I don't want to be, help me. When we do that, when we spend time pleading before God to keep us holy, to help his holy DNA permeate out of us, we become more aware of how prone we are to live where we're not supposed to be. I don't know about you, but as, as I mature in Christ, I realize more ways that I want to sin. And in the process of realizing more ways that I want to sin, I become more grateful for what Jesus has done, for the forgiveness that is mine from the Father through the redemption of the Son, and I become more grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, enabling me to walk with him. The more aware of how prone we are to live in the ways that are not in line with who our Father is, the more grateful we become for his forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. As our awareness of our need for forgiveness grows, our willingness to forgive others grows. When we cherish being forgiven because we're aware of how prone we are to go where we shouldn't, we become better forgivers. When we are grateful for the cross of Christ, for the compassion and the mercy that God poured out on us through that, we are more prone to extend that to those around us that need it just as much as we do. And when we realize that our greatest need is to be forgiven by God, that that is the most costly thing he could possibly do for us, and he has done it completely. When we realize that, then give us this day our daily bread seems like a really reasonable request. After all, what's more costly for God? To reconcile me to himself through the blood of his son or to get me an apple to eat and some wood so I can have shelter? God already provided my greatest need through Jesus. Asking him, acknowledging that I need food and shelter and trusting him to provide that is a very reasonable request in light of the fact that we've already been forgiven. We can ask for food and shelter because he has forgiven us. He has proven his love and his provision through his forgiveness in Christ. And so we can confidently ask for daily provision because he gener generously supplies all of our needs. 
when, when my efforts and my focus in this world are not consumed with sinful pursuits because God is protecting me from them. Verse 13. When my relationships with others are not focused on getting justice from them because I'm forgiving them as God has forgiven me. Verse 12. And when my focus is not on getting provision or being entertained in this world because God is in charge of that. Verse 11 then my focus and my efforts and my energy are free for one thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is where the presence of God and the ways of God come together. And when we walk back through that prayer, when God has made me holy and is keeping me holy so that I can fellowship well with him, when he is causing me to cherish my forgiveness and to extend forgiveness like he does, when I trust him for my daily needs because he already owns everything, then the overflow of that is a passionate desire to see the presence and the ways of God happen right here and right now, and I start living for the kingdom of God rather than for this world. That's what happens when God reorders my life. I can't live for this kingdom if those other things aren't true. But when, when God works in those other areas of our lives, when, when we're realigned to who God is and what God values, then I am free to live for his kingdom. And when the presence and the ways of God invade this broken world and we see restoration and healing and renewal and goodness come amidst the devastation of this broken world, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We love the nearness of God and the holiness of who God is, is exalted and his majesty and his goodness and all of his attributes are put on display in a way that is only possible in this broken world. This broken world provides the dictionary for the attributes of God that we're going to discover for all eternity. We are going to worship him for who he is based on what he does right here and right now in this broken world. And that's what happens when his kingdom comes. When we long to see God's name be hallowed, who he is exalted, when we cherish our nearness to him, our gratitude for Jesus' redeeming work is fueled. And we become kingdom worshipers. We stop remaking God in our image to try to get out of him what we want. And we start being remade into the image of the one who is redeeming us so that we can worship him as he truly is. That's what it means to be kingdom worshipers. We worship him because he is creator and we can trust him as provider. He is redeemer so we can forgive as we are forgiven. And he is holy, so we, see, we flee sin and temptation and we walk in holiness because that is who he is. And we stop wanting him to be about us and to be like us and we begin to be remade like he is. And we become kingdom worshipers. None of us have arrived at any of this. And we're going to wrap it up, and, and these three points will be up on the, the screen again in a minute. And, and I'm going to give us a moment just to pray through them and to acknowledge 
we need to grow in these and to acknowledge that in this world, our eyes are drawn down and we are consumed by what is in front of us. And the Lord's Prayer is not an opportunity to get what we want out of God. It is how Jesus is showing us who we need to be to be kingdom people. He's surfacing issues in our hearts. And it could be that one of these is a struggle for you right now. It could be that multiple of them are a struggle right now. It could be that God has given you a season of intimacy with him and holiness in life and confidence. And that's awesome. And praise him for that. But there's three, there's three things that we see in this prayer of who God wants us to be. The people of the kingdom are certain that God will provide for his purposes. And that frees us from anxiety and from idolatry. The people of the kingdom are forgiven and are forgivers. And we are freed from guilt and from seeking justice for those that have wronged us. And the people of the kingdom don't toy with temptation, they flee from it. And we are enabled to seek and to live out the holiness of God. Prayer isn't about us getting what we want out of God. Prayer is about us becoming these kinds of people so that we can be kingdom worshipers. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and pray with me. Um, you, can, you can look at what's on the screen if you want. You can just quietly pray before the Lord. But we're going to pause a second and then I'll close in prayer. Jesus, I'm grateful that as you began your ministry walking this earth and showing us uh, how far we are from you in so many ways and how small our desires are and how attuned to this world we live, I'm grateful that as you set the bar beyond anything we could ever do at the beginning, at the end of your earthly ministry, you satisfied those requirements, every single one of them. And we now gather before you not to try to please you, not to try to accomplish, but to thank you for what you have done and to strive to come into line with who you are and what you are doing, to strive to be kingdom worshipers, to strive to be remade into the image of the one who has redeemed us. And so we thank you and we worship you. And we are grateful that you are Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen.